The next chapter with Prim's Rookpad is a production of iHeartRadio. Hey everybody, it's Prim. Welcome to the next chapter presented by Baron Davis and Slick Studios. This week's guest is former professional basketball player and also a fine artist, a comedian, and a columnist for SFGate in the Bay Area, Rod Benson. So Rod played 12 years of pro ball and spent his entire career pretty much overseas and also in the NBA's D League, now known as the G League, which is the NBA's minor league association. And with the summer league going on through July, I think this episode comes at a really good time and also sheds light on the other side of the professional basketball experience. We recorded this interview last summer in June of 2021 after I came across an article Rod wrote for SF Gate titled, I'm retired from pro sports. My career still gives me nightmares. It was beautifully written and constructed and in a way that offered just a different lens on the athlete retirement experience. In tweeting his column out, he said, some topics are a slog to get through because I want to do them justice and make a salient point that helps facilitate change. I must admit that this was one of those and I'm happy to be done. That said, I'm also proud of the result and happy to share. In this interview, he reveals just the different side of the professional basketball experience, one that's lesser known, I think, and extends beyond the highly publicized and televised NBA experience. It's a life that just requires a lot more traveling, a lot of instability, a lot of bouncing around and living in cities that no one has ever heard of, a lot of constantly trying to prove yourself, and a lot less money. And another aspect that he points out is this idea that sport asks and oftentimes demands athletes to become someone they are not. And in this case, Rod talks about how people, including some of his peers and coaches, thought he was just kind of too soft. And he discusses how he had to become this hard, aggressive, kind of like wild card in the locker room in order for people in the basketball world to respect him. There's often this belief that sport builds character and all these other lifelong skills, and it does. But the other side of this is that athletes develop certain traits like aggression and like this delusional belief that we are great or the next best thing that really doesn't translate to the so-called civilian world, as Rod calls it. And these traits can get in the way of athletes' vocational and personal development sometimes. It is an enlightening conversation, and I'm pretty confident you're going to take away something from this. So without further ado, here's Rod Benson. Rod, it's so nice to meet you. I loved your article in SFGate. I was very moved by, by it. And I've heard multiple stories about leaving sports and the issues that athletes face, including my own personal journey. As I've told you, this is the whole reason why I created this show. But there was something really poetic and very powerful about the way you said some things. But um, I remember reading on Twitter your caption, I'm retired from pro sports. My career still gives me nightmares. So why did you decide to write this now? Yeah, I mean, it's you know, when you write something, they the editors 
title it for you, you know? So, mm -hmm. um, although that is true, it's, uh, you know, it was even like jarring for me to read that and, you know, that, it, uh, I guess it does. I did write that in the article. Um, but it was, you know, it's, it's, it's mental health awareness month or it was, and, yeah. you know, I have some friends who are doing amazing things in the space of, uh, mental health and sports, uh, guys I've, you know, played with in college or met after college. And, uh, you know, just in talking to them over the last, you know, couple of years, uh, I realized it was something worth pitching and worth, uh, maybe taking a stab at. Um, I do kind of pride myself on saying maybe the same thing other people are saying, but in a different way. Mm -hmm. Um, so I just felt like maybe I could add a spin that would reach a different audience. So what was the process like in, in terms of writing that? Because I know you retired in 2018 or around that yeah. time, right? Yeah. So within the context of, you know, the, an athlete's lifespan and development, that is fairly recent. It's not like it happened 10 years ago. So I'm curious if sure. you've ever had the opportunity to actually write out those feelings and those emotions and thoughts since you retired. Yeah, that was the first time. And, you know, I do think that there is a, a big difference between someone who's been retired 10 years and someone who's been retired two years. Um, from what I could gather before I retired is that, you know, it takes someone about two years to really get their life together. Um, you know, I've had friends who, even the most successful friends who, you know, really found their, their footing and, have, and have successful careers and families now, that first two year period was really, really difficult on them. So, um, for me, uh, I would say that it was, a, it was roughly the same about a year and a half in mm -hmm. is when I started to really question, like, you know, what am I doing? You know, it's, it's no matter how much money you save up or support you have or whatever, you start to see things turning and you're like, okay, all right, <laughs> seriously, like, what are we doing? Like what's, and it's yeah. hard, especially because you just need to get another job first of all, but any job you take that's is going to be technically worse than what you were doing. Um, yeah. because the public isn't going to respect it the same. So, you know, I've had right. friends who went to work for CarMax or something and people will be like, wow, what a big fall off. Like, is it, it's just a different job, but all yeah. this stuff is, it's difficult to deal with in this process. So you're trying to find the right thing, save face, like be this person that everyone built you up to be and find yourself at the same time. So that, that early period is the hardest one. Yeah. That's really unfortunate and sad that it feels like any job that you take after playing, especially professional sports is, is a step back, but, but who's to say that it's a step back or it's a drop below. That's just society. And also our culture telling us that, right? Like who's to say like CarMax is worse or less than being a pro athlete. And also, you know, um, it's really unfortunate, but I'm, when you said two years about how long it takes a, an athlete to kind of get their act together, I'm like two years. I'm like, what about 20 years? <laughs> oh, like two years. Who are you talking to? Because, and I think, and I think that's, that's why I was so um, interested to, to talk to you because the athletes that I have interviewed, everybody is at different points in their life, you know, and some people are, 50 years old and 20 years removed from their professional experience. Some people got to go out the way they wanted. Some people didn't. And so I would say that you're, you're one of the few that have recently retired. Um, and I always like diving into that because when I think when I look back at my experience, I think on the surface, you're right. I think logistically you, you start getting a handle on things and you start adjusting to the, 
no sports, no teammate, no structure. What is my purpose? What am I going to do? What am I, what do I like? But I think the emotional stuff was the aspect that I was not prepared for. And for me, that didn't start manifesting itself until maybe like five or 10 years later, uh, not to scare you, but, um, so I'm wondering what that emotional experience has been like for you just leaving basketball. Yeah. I mean, I, I do think that the age in which you leave a sport does matter also. Um, me being fortunate enough to play for 12 years, you know, I kind of had a full career and called it on my own terms. So it's still wild that with everything like planned, it was still very difficult. Yeah. Um, Cause most people don't have that planning. I mean, uh, I would say 95% of people I know the game ended them. Like they didn't prepare for it. They didn't know it was coming. All of a sudden you don't get a call back. I think we can look at Austin rivers. Is he much worse than he was two years ago? He's probably the exact same player. He finds himself mm-hmm. at home looking for a 10 day contract. It happens so quickly that you're, you can feel discarded, honestly. Um, so again, I, I'm lucky to have avoided that and be someone who's older and had, you know, kind of a full career and time to prepare. But, you know, the reason why I guess I said two years is because also like, I'm still relatively young. So I don't have a lot of friends who are 15, 20 years removed from mm-hmm. um, competition, but I am also fortunate enough to have some friends who like really have their, you know, have their head on straight. And yeah. still for them, like telling me how like treacherous it was, I was like, man, like how, if you can't do it, does anybody do it? I remember <laughs> reading an article about Terrell Owens, maybe a year after he retired from football, that he sold his $500,000 uh, condo. And like the headline was, Terrell Owens must be broke, sells condo. And it's so interesting because <laughs> that's not like even a high amount of money for like a condo in LA. Yeah, like, uh, but but it, 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 it framed this whole idea that like any change you make that is different is going to be worse. And you're right. It isn't, we don't put that upon ourselves. Society does, but then eventually, of course we do. Like we internal, like where does our value set come from? If our values always come from achieving more, being better, um, getting praise, like immediate praise for doing something good. Uh, when that ends, where does, where does your value lie? Um, again, my friend at CarMax, he was playing in Brazil before then, right? Sometimes he wouldn't get paid. Uh, he'd get cut from a team, picked up to another team. When he went to CarMax, he actually had more stable income than he'd ever had in his <laughs> life and, and supported his family just fine. And they're all, they're all happier now. But how does the outside see it as it sees, they see it as a failure. So um, I guess when I think about myself, again, I was fortunate enough to have always kind of had interests outside of basketball that, mm-hmm. you know, when I was playing kind of got me in trouble a little bit. Um, just because times were different 15 years ago, but being able to tap back into that was a blessing um, and has made it once I was able to find that footing, um, establish the art career, like, you know, kind of play the game a little bit too, like make a LinkedIn, like, you know, reach out to people, stuff like that, that you wouldn't even yeah. consider necessary. Like they should come to me. I'm, I played for a long time. Like, that's not how it works. You got to really do the thing. Uh, yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's hard on all of us, but um I do think the structure part is the hardest part for people to, to make up. Yeah. How old are you, by the way? 36. Okay. 36. Uh, and what is it about the structure that has been, that's proven to be the most challenging for you? And by the way, I think a lot of, um, 
this was, this was a big thing for me, um, you know, adjusting to that structure aspect and not having practice, not having, well, for tennis, we didn't watch film like you guys and football players do, but not having meetings and practice and training and physical therapy and, and all that other stuff. But I think the general population could probably relate, especially over the last year, because the pandemic has thrown everybody's lives upside down. And we all had to create a new sense of normal and structure for ourselves. But going back to your journey, what was the toughest part about adjusting to your new non-athlete structure? Yeah, I think that, you know, first of all, just staying in shape, like in staying in relative shape, you know, we, nobody criticizes their body more than an athlete also. Like you, you constantly are working on it, but you constantly are like, I'm too big or I'm too skinny or whatever. And when you retire, you just, it just gets bigger and bigger. And you're just looking at yourself like, what's happened? Like, nobody likes it. Nobody's like, oh, this is comfortable. It's like, no, what? like this is the worst. And, and it, part of it is like, yeah, I was forced to work out. You know, I had like trainers yeah. who would call me every day and be like, Rod, what are you doing? If I wanted, like, I remember missing practice was like, it felt like missing a day of school or something. Like, wow, I get to stay home and like and play video games. <laughs> like, it's, but now that's every day, you know, it's every day, just like anyone's ever had to decide, like you make choice after choice after choice to maintain your health, to maintain your weight, to maintain your diet. Um, and again, because you associate all of that with your worth, when you yeah. aren't uh, doing it, you can start to feel like worthless. Like you'll look in the mirror and be like, what? It, like I joked about it a minute ago, but like, what am I actually doing? Like, like I really didn't do anything yesterday. I didn't do anything the day before. Like it's been fun, but like, is this benefiting me? And if it isn't like, what structure do I need to put in place? I know it's going to sound funny, but literally just getting a Peloton and having like a schedule that I could like lock into, yeah. like changed a lot of that for me. Cause I could be like, Oh, well everyone, you know, 8am, it's going to be a thing. Let me get to bed. Let me not drink tonight. Let me, you know, eat healthy afterwards <laughs> without stuff like that. It's like, you feel lost. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, there's this misconception or misunderstanding with regards to, you know, people looking at athletes and it's like, well, you've been working out your whole life and you, you know exactly what to do. But I think the thing that people oftentimes forget is that that structure is built in for us. And so we have athletes and coaches and teams to kind of build everything out. They give us a plan. You have, it goes through phases. You have a tournament coming up, you have tryouts, all this other stuff. And it's so interesting that you talk about that kind of like relationship with the body because our bodies are the vessel that allows us to perform as sports. And so I was actually just having uh, a conversation with my husband this morning and I was having a rough morning because I'm seven weeks away from having our second baby. And so for me being pregnant as a former athlete, it's like, Oh really? I'm not going to lie. It is, especially in the last trimester, I'm blown up. I have like a 30 pound medicine ball stuck in my internal cavity. It's pressing <laughs> on all my organs. I can't even, my Peloton's right behind me here. Um, as you can see in, in my room, but I was like, I'm doing level 31 and I'm like barely managing it. I'm so tired and it. And I just, I felt awful about myself this morning, just miserable. Cause I'm like, and I, you know, I'm such a gym rat. Like if you talk to any of my friends or athletes or teammates, whatever, like 
that's what I prided myself on is like going out and running six miles, even just like six months ago. And now I can't even do like a normal workout. It makes me feel horrible. But going back to your point though, I think it's just that, that relationship and you, and you kind of have to deconstruct that condition thought, you know, almost, um, and, and maybe not develop a new relationship with your body, I think is what I'm trying to say very, uh, not eloquently. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> but, but you're right though. I mean, I'm, I'm probably, I mean, I stopped weighing myself a while ago. I'm probably like 280. My playing weight was like 250. And it's like, I had to get comfortable. Like, unless I want to do that amount of work again, I'm never going to be mm-hmm. that again. So like, mm-hmm. am I comfortable being this? Am I comfortable not looking at a scale? Am I comfortable just like making healthier choices and just like living with myself? Um, cause again, you're, I think, uh, you know, and there's a lot going on about Naomi Osaka and, and I had some, yeah. some interviews where the interview words were less kind to her. Um, but it's, it, you know, what I said is nobody scrutinized themselves more than an athlete. Like your extra bit mm-hmm. of scrutiny here is meaningless. Like <laughs> I'm sure she's putting herself through it. Like he, he, mm-hmm. no one does that more than us. So especially with our body and the thing we see every day when we look in the mirror, it's like, yeah. it's just, you keep, you can't turn that off very easily. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you're, you're still in the process of developing a new relationship with, with your new self, your new body, your evolution, whether it's a body that's lighter or heavier or how you want to work out. But it sounds like that's still kind of like an ongoing process. Uh, I mean, I think, I think I'm getting closer to being there. Uh, I still Mm -hmm. think about it, but um, like I said, I stopped weighing myself. I stopped, you know, caring. People still love me regardless. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, The main thing for me is just, yeah, just be healthy um, make healthy choices and just, you know, and just live life, you know, after that. Mm-hmm. Well, in your article, you kind of talked about some, you talked about your physical scars and your arms and your wrists from playing, but you also talked about the mental scars and I'm going to pull the quote out of your article. And you said, after ramping up my therapy sessions, I wonder how many mental scars I have to the kind that don't show up with a physical mark. So what kind of during your time of self-exploration and therapy, what kind of mental scars have you discovered? Oh man, so many, (laughs) so many. I mean, it's, it's funny because, you know, I'm going to kind of give an unexpected answer here, but you know, I played most of my career overseas. Mm -hmm. I have huge faults in terms of how I communicate with people, um, how I allocate time. Um, but especially, every relationship I had was kind of developed for a three month span. So, you know, I'd be mm-hmm. here from, you know, April to August and every single person I met would fit into that space. Um, and being retired and meeting people and developing like deeper relationships that like are completely different and I'm still acting out in this way. That's one of the things I started, you know, reason I started going to therapy. I'm like, man, all my relationships are kind of weird. Like, you know, I know like, I know like every promoter in town, like every party promoter in town, not because we're friends. It's because I'm here for three months. I need something to do. Mm-hmm. Who's, who's got me? Um, and, I, and I use that example because it's not the most egregious example, but it's like there's so many ways that we, um, we start to do things, habits we develop, uh, ways of thinking yeah. that are not at all 
like they don't work. They don't work for the real world. Uh, I had a friend, you know, send me, uh, send me a message after I wrote the article and he quoted that same part. Uh, this guy's, uh, played at Stanford and then overseas. And he says he's, he, he, he still has trouble when, you know, when it's time to get paid for work he's done. Cause where he played, he, what he never got paid on time. Could be two months late, could be six months late. Some places never paid at all. Um, and so now he's like, you know, he's got a great business, but when people owe him money, he always feels like thankful just to get what he's earned. He's like, this is so hard for me to undo because I've just 15 years. All I can think about is the money's not coming. So he finds himself like begging and like being thankful when someone like pays him $5 on a Venmo, right? It's, there's, wow. there's so many things like this that like go on and on that are just ingrained in us. Yeah. And maybe even more so if you played overseas because you're adjusting culturally as well. Yeah. That is uh, an aspect about at least playing overseas regarding basketball and the culture of that something that I, I don't know too much of. I can only speak from a tennis perspective. And so I, I understand the rigmarole and the pains of having to be on the tour. You're going over to Turkey and Poland and random, and they're not even like the big cities. They're places where people don't want to go and they've never heard of. And you're playing, I'm like playing literally right next to a farm and it smells like cow dung basically. Um, (laughs) So I'd like to hear just a little bit more about those, those, experiences and those so-called mental scars. I, I had no idea that you wouldn't get paid on time or they would just forget to pay you or not pay you. I mean, so what are just some things that, that happened in your experience? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's funny that you described it very accurately. You know, I've been a Dominican <laughs> six times and never been to the beach once, you know, <laughs> I've played in Korea. Everyone said, uh, you know, they're like, oh, you played in Seoul. I'm like, no. Like, I played in like the <laughs> Bakersfield of Korea. Like, I've been in the Bakersfield of every country I've ever been to, except for this <laughs> actual Bakersfield. Bakersfield. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, it, 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 I would say like, especially the, the early D-League stuff was rough, man. I mean, I was making, and I wrote this in a previous article about the dress code, but, uh, you know, we had the NBA dress code, uh, but we didn't have any money. We were like the first year. So it was like, an experiment in doing this with the D league as well. And so I was making $400 every two weeks, essentially, and being asked to, you know, dress a certain way to like establish myself as an adult, um, Mm. to like kind of deal with being called semi pro all the time, which I was like, there's nothing semi about this except for the paycheck. You know what I mean? And, and I feel like for a lot of guys, it was crazy hard for them to deal with this because again, you have like, you're doing the thing, but you have no self-worth. You know, you come from a big college. I was in the tournament just months before. I was like, player of the game in the, in the tournament against NC State. Six months later, I'm like on my buddy's floor in San Francisco, like waiting to be drafted to the D-League and then make no money for a year. Um, mm-hmm. the, 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 I guess I, I really internalized like poverty as part of my like basketball struggle very early. I didn't make real money for three years. Um, and in doing so, again, it's like, I, I always say that I kind of suffer from like ugly duckling syndrome, where it's like you spend so much time like believing that you're like worth less, that mm. you don't see yourself how other people see you. Like, my girl will be like, oh, well, like, you know, you know, all the women in here are like looking at you. I'm like, no, they aren't. Like, I'm, I'm still <laughs> broke in my mind. I'm still whack in my mind. Like, 
I've got no validation from this thing. And I try to like spend my way out of it and it's not helping. I developed terrible spending habits, especially playing overseas, uh, in part because they give you so much. Every time I'd stay at a hotel, it'd be like, you know, this is a perk of playing in Korea, so can't really complain, but, you know, room service free. I'd order like bottles of Moet to the room and like stuff like that. Then you retire and it's like, you're just at a regular hotel. You're at a day's end and you, sorry, sir. You don't know the, you don't know the comforts I'm used to. Like, you know, it's like, you get, get yeah. you up the habits of the things that have happened to you, um, whether it be spending, whether it be, um, oh, there's another good one that's, uh, uh, Thing I'm blanking on it right now, but yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's hard to even quantify. There's so many, like you could throw out a, a word and I can associate it with some random thing from my career, like over and over and over again to, to no end. Come quad. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, yeah. Yeah. This is like, so if you've ever been to China, right. You know, come quad makes me think of food. This is an exercise actually in improv. It's A to C. <laughs> a makes me think of B, B makes me think of C. Quant makes you think of food. Food makes you think of, you know, you go to some places and you don't have a lot of food options and you don't even know what to trust. So you, a lot of people end up like kind of not eating, uh, during important stuff. And you know, I went to China for the first time with the NBA. So we had like the full spread. Okay. I came back again with a Korean team and all my Korean teammates brought literally like a, a boxed ramen and spam. They're like, we don't trust the food here. And I'm like, well, I didn't bring any of that. What if, if none oh of you guys gosh. trust the food here, what am I supposed to do? We're in like, we're not in Beijing. We're in yeah. some city I don't even know. Some city where there's, there's a pool outside my window and it's green. And I'm like, why is it bright green and clearly dirty? It's like, so I'm supposed to trust the food now? And, and again, you, you internalize, like, you end up just being like a reduced version of yourself that's built on surviving and not built yeah. on thriving. Fascinating. Um, I actually can relate a little bit to the the food situation. Um, several years ago, I decided to make a, a, a pro comeback to try to find closure to my athletic career, which I was unhappy about how it ended. And so I went overseas and I went over to, for example, like one of the first places like Turkey all by myself. Um, and you're right though, the food situation is very different. And so this is not a glamorous you know, I'm basically staying in like a school dorm and, um, they serve, fortunately they did serve breakfast, but I, I think the only thing that I recognize there were hard boiled eggs. Uh, and even they kind of smelled funny, but they didn't even have like any milk. They didn't have the water. You have to make sure it's bottled water because otherwise you're going to be very sick during your match and, and all this other stuff. So I ended up going and having to play on kind of an empty stomach. Cause it's like, well, if I eat, I could get sick tonight during my match in a hundred degree weather, or I could take my chances and just eat this power bar and that might, you know, be enough. So, um, I'm going to try to throw another word here. I don't know. Uh, sweatsuit. <laughs> sweatsuit. Uh, yes. Yeah, sweatsuit. I mean, when I think of sweatsuits, I think more of college, right? Because you, yeah. you know, it's kind of like one of the first things you get that like solidifies like, oh, I'm, I'm here, I'm an athlete. And it's funny because in college, though, you know, you get the sweatsuit, but you're not really that person yet. Like for me, and I, I wrote about this in a, about when I was writing about James Wiseman, or, but a little bit in this article, too. You know, they give you the thing and you think that's that you're now there, but there's so much you have to undergo before you actually get on the court mm-hmm. and earn the time. And for me, that was 
incredibly difficult. You know, you asked me earlier to, if you wanted to say San Diego or where I was actually from, Carter by the Sea. I swear to God, in a locker room in college, they put everyone's name and where they're from on their locker tag. And it's like, yo, David Paris, like Modesto, California, like this guy, Oakland, California. And mine says Cardiff by the Sea. And everyone's like, this pussy ass, like, who, who is this guy? You know what I mean? Like, I was immediately like the softest person there. And uh-huh. truly, I kind of played like it. And, it, you know, it would be one of these things where, like, I'd be interested in girls and they'd be like, oh, don't ever change. And they're like all dating my teammates. And it's like, you know, it's like... <laughs> You, you get these, the, the sweatsuit and you think you're like a big boy now, but you're not. And I certainly mm. wasn't. And truly, I had to become like a, a darker version of myself. Um, not mm. one that I was, I wasn't, I mean, I was proud of it back then. But now looking mm. back, it's like, you know, I, I really just became like kind of an, like an ass in order to kind of like look the role first and then like started to actually play like it. Um, and it's funny because I do think about like, all the time when I'm around people, like I consider people who didn't play sports civilians because everyone has to go through this kind of process at some point. You might be younger, might be older, but you can't just be like this nice person anymore. You have to be able to access something that's truly crazy, honestly, to be that good and that locked in for a long time. This isn't normal brain thought. This is like, I might kill if it comes to it, but I definitely won't kill, but I might kill. And I at least need to make my opponent think that I definitely will. And carry that for a decade is yeah. again, it's 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 insane. And I play rec league softball now, and every now and then it'll come out, and people will be like, "Rod, are you are you okay, man?" Oh my god, you, know, <laughs> you don't know what I've been through, my guy. You don't know, what, <laughs> you know where I've been. <laughs> you don't know my mental scars. Um, no, it is really true. There's this edge that I think athletes are able to access, especially ones that played at the elite level. Um, and it's funny, I was just speaking to former NHL all-star Theo Fleury, and then which led us talking to uh, talk about Mike Tyson, former boxing legend, because that was one of my first episodes in this season too. And the two of them, Theo and Mike Tyson, experienced a lot of trauma when they were um, growing up, particularly sexual abuse. But the point is, is that they were, they had met us bested and, and kind of held in all this trauma and this pain. But that manifested manifested itself into their ability to play with like aggression this controlled but also uncontrolled aggression which was rewarded and celebrated inside the ring or inside the hawking ring but it's that edge that athletes are able to play with that's really that's really important but for you talking about like changing your persona and your personality you're not the first basketball player that i've heard say that and it seems to happen more with like the big guys. So I'm curious, I'm just curious about it. Had it, did it have to do with your position or was it just the culture itself, sports culture? Uh, I think it was probably both. Um, Mm. because I was like, I was quite skinny then. So it did. I mean, my position did matter in terms of being tough, but I do think it was the culture. Um, Mm. the story I, I tell all the time, uh, is that, you know, the day it changed for me, it wasn't some, uh, like post-battle or something. I just literally woke up and I was like, I want to transfer, but I don't think that's going to work. Uh, so if I'm going to be here, I just need to be entirely different. I literally just woke up and I was like, I'm going to be exactly what people don't expect me to be. And I, when I decided that the first person I saw on my team 
I was just going to slap him, just, just smack him. And so I go to the locker room and we have the punch code and I put in the code and open the door and there's already eight, nine guys in there. And one guy's back is to me, whose name I won't say, but this is a guard. This is not a big <laughs> man. It just happened to be, he was there. And I tap him on the shoulder and before he fully turns around, I just, wow, just as hard as I can, just smacked him. And the what? whole room was just shook because they were like, just processing like, did someone just get hit? Was it, it was Rod who did it? You, you hit him? And then the guy essentially like beat me up. It's not like I like immediately learned how to like be a world-class fighter all of a sudden. Like it, but after that, I became like this wild card where it was like, it, it, no one could predict what I was going to do. And that also like kind of scared people. And the people who like started trying me the most in that first like week were the guards. I remember I was leaving <laughs> training table one time and I guess I had elbowed a guy the wrong way. Cause I, I was playing way different. I was like hitting people in practice too. Like, I would take the ball out of the net and just punt it into the stands and be like, give me minutes. Like it, it, either, either I'm going to get it this way or I'm not going to get it. So whatever, right. either I'm going to get it or I'm going to get kicked off the team. So this guy was mad, you know, and he's like six, three. And I'm leaving the training table with my dinner or whatever. And he hits it out of my hand, like in the hallway, like right outside the door. And instinctively, I just put my hands around his neck and I'm like, are you calm? Are you calm? And he's like trying to get to me, but he's too small. I'm like, are you calm? Are you calm? And that became like this legendary thing where people would be like, don't mess with Rob, man. He's going to calm you down real quick. And it's like wow. how quickly this perception changed of me that also then translated into the game. So, it, I mean, it, it was, it, I had to fully embrace the culture of being kind of the worst to, in order to be good because everyone has to be. You're kind of the worst. No one's nice on the court. Yeah. Huh. So that was in college at Cal Berkeley when you were there, yeah. the four years yeah. that you were there. Yeah. And how old were you when this happened? What year were you? I was probably 19 or 20, like early junior year. Early junior year. Okay. So you had kind of had a couple of years under your belt and had had this impression or this experience of, hey, Rod is fill in the blank, soft or whatever. And, and the player or the athlete that you didn't feel like you wanted to be or could be. And so it was just like, you woke up and woke up one day and this is the person I'm going to try this out because, and that that's kind of understandable because you're like, well, I've been doing this and it's not working. So I might as well try something else. And I think this is what's so fascinating is that like on my show, I want to show the intersection of people's of, of athletes, personal development and who they are as people and how it's so deeply intertwined with what they do and with sports and how they are so connected. I think that's just a perfect example. It's like, you almost had to like, you really did become a different person. And it sounds like kind of not only on the court, but off the court as well. Oh, definitely off the court. And it, it's, it's the reason why I stayed junior year. Cause I think if, if you met me before then you would have met someone who's not me. Like it was my junior year where hmm. I started to become who I am now. And you're right. Like I would, before then I would avoid parties with other athletes because i'd be like it's too aggressive it's too weird i i my friends were all like regular students um come my junior year you know i i threw a big party at my house and all the athletes came and they called it rod fest and it was it's funny because like rod fest is like kind of like my like housewarming party for myself where it's like guys i'm here mm -hmm. now like i get it i get it let's do this like let's invite over all the athletes let's get all the girls let's go let's go do what athletes do 
And it, right. it, it's, it's funny because I, I still don't really even like that. Like whatever the athletes yeah. do thing, I don't, it's still not really me, but being able mm-hmm. to fit, be comfortable there and like blend in, you know, there's, uh, I don't know if you know who Omar Wilkes is, but he's, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Jamal Wilkes son and he's the head of um, clutch sports basketball. And he was, you know, he was at Cal the same time as me and just, he's more like me at heart. Like he, you know, he went to Loyola high, like a very nice preppy school. Um, mm-hmm. comes from privilege and money. His dad was an NBA, you know, hall of famer is, a, is still a hall of famer. And, uh, but he knew how to like go in and out of these spaces with such comfort. Mm-hmm. I was always like so jealous of him. Like, how do you do this? How do you do this? So I like really wanted to become like him a lot. Also like, Omar gets it. He knows how to be him, but also like can be anything. Yeah. And it's like I had to become anything. Hmm. Yeah, it, it is really interesting. That makes me think of, um, yeah, athletes or people that can be social chameleons. Cause it's not easy to zip in and out of those spaces. Um, and I think there is this issue and it's one that I haven't really talked about, but I've, I've definitely written about in my first year as a PhD student and just talking about the the mental health aspect with regards to athletes. And I remember reading a research article and it talked about the hyper-masculine sports culture that's permeated, you know, everywhere. And it's, it's those attributes of emotional suppression, like celebrating those traditional masculine norms. You're strong, you're tough, suck it up. You know, you don't talk about emotions or feelings like don't be a fill in the blank, whatever it is. But how do you think that culture creates problems for athletes as they leave sport? Oh, well, yeah, first of all, you can't be anything like that in the, in the real world. Um, yeah. It just doesn't work. Right? But I think it's, you know, it's, it's interesting because you, you, that hyper masculinity, um, it obviously does serve you in, in sport, right? So as we are humans and we tend to tend to think what are our strengths and our weaknesses and how can we apply them to new spaces, you know, anyone looking for a new job, how does being the most aggressive person in the room serve you? Now, yeah. realistically, it kind of limits you. You can be an assistant coach. You can be, you can go coach your high school team. You can yell at them all you want. Um, I think it's part of the reason a lot of athletes go into coaching. It's not necessarily that they, just love the sport so much. It's like the only place that feels safe um, mm. to like continue being this person that you've created. Uh, when you take it out of that context, though, you realize none of that stuff really works for you. Um, a great example I have of someone who's like really shifted that and like owned it in a way that I think is like brilliant is Marshawn Lynch. You know, I went to college mm-hmm. with him too. And he, back then he had like a big personality, um, but he was also like, yeah, it's like don't mess with Marshawn. Like, obviously, I wouldn't. Like, he was he was big, he was strong, he was from Oakland. Like, nobody like had anything to say <laughs> about Marshawn. Uh, mm-hmm. And it and it first at first it cost him when he got to the league, right? And then he decided I'm not doing any interviews, like mm-hmm. ever again. Coming to a head with the I'm just here so I won't get fined. Mm-hmm. And now since then, look what's happened. It's weird. He's like he's doing commercials for like Skittles. Uh, like, right. you know, it's like they, he's, he's, he, he's been able to find this way to like, yes, I've had this image, but it's not necessarily who I am. There's more depth to it. And I think that he's a, he's a unique example in that because a lot of people aren't given the opportunity to present their depth. 
Um, especially if you're my age where this kind of stuff was, you know, suppressed. I, I spent my, most of my career, especially when I was in the D league writing, writing for Yahoo. And Mm -hmm. at that time, there was also people writing about me, writing, calling it a problem, asking if it was a problem, interviewing GMs being like, is, you know, would you take somebody like this, like this to mean someone who was literally just tapping into that other, that emotional depth. Um, and finding creative ways to kind of detach from the sport because you're not allowed to detach from the sport. Um, according to fans or even coaches, you know, uh, I tell a story all the time and I don't fault him at all for this, but you know, I'm in the Pacers in training camp. Larry Bird calls me in for a meeting. I'm the last guy on the roster, right? There's no way this is like someone at McDonald's being asked to talk to Ronald, right? It's like, why means to the top? Like yeah. for what? Like, and I, was, right. I was thinking, wow, they're really nice about cutting people here. Like I get direct from Larry Bird. What a, <laughs> what a treat. Never even spoke to the guy. I've been here for weeks. Uh, <laughs> we, uh, I get in the meeting and he's like, you know, we had the mouse in the palace, you know, Jamal Tinsley shot himself. Uh, we don't need any more distractions here. Uh, we prefer if you weren't writing when you were here and wow. it's, it's again, it's not, he wasn't alone in that. I thought he was actually like nice by communicating it instead of other GMs being like, we're not even going to touch this guy. Um, yeah. But it, it kind of shows that just that, just the act of writing, which by the way, the right. last article I wrote before then was about steak and shake. I never had it before. There's one in Indianapolis. And I was like, guys, have you tried this? This is, this is crazy. This is so good. Uh, yeah, and, and steak so and I, shake I, is I, good. But that was your last article that you had written and they had come to you and just said, hey, you got to cut this out. Yes. And it's not because of the article, but you know, it, it realistically Obviously. shows that the, the writing is back then was considered as dangerous as a gun, so to speak. Uh-huh. Right. Um, so I'm saying that long story to say that the, the, in my generation, looking for outlets to deal with that aggression and channel your like, right. you know, your feelings somewhere else was like really frowned upon to the point right. where that, that whole thing is credited for, I mean, the fact that, and I, you know, I wasn't Blake Griffin or anybody like that talented, uh, is why I didn't like stick in the NBA. Uh, so what is the incentive for anyone to do that? There isn't, I mean, I think it's starting to change, but not in my age group. Yeah. I, I don't think it was definitely a part of, um, uh, a quality where there's encouragement to participate in other aspects outside sports. I don't think it was a quality of our generation. Um, your, your, generation playing in professional basketball but i also don't think it's something that's necessarily encouraged in today's today's world either um at the d1 level or maybe at the professional level i think that's starting to improve a little bit but i think you gotta have you gotta have like some credibility and clout like you gotta be lebron james if you're lebron james or anybody that falls within that like a category like you can do what you gotta do but anybody below that i don't know if they had the freedom and permission to do so so I'm, I'm curious about, you know, as you're going through the, your career over 12 years playing professional basketball, 10, 11, 12, 13, different teams, whatever it was overseas, how were you able to, to meet finances and financially support yourself if you weren't allowed to do some of these things? Um, I mean, I really don't know about those first couple of years, honestly, it's, it's, <laughs> It's funny, like, think about any, ask anybody who went to college, like, oh, how'd you make it? They're like, oh, we just did. Like, I don't know. It's like, 
you had lower expectations of what something should be. So you just kind of made it work. And I will say like North Dakota was also like fairly inexpensive. Um, but we would like, you know, there'd be, um, if you did appearances, you'd get gift cards to, uh, KFC or to Buffalo Wild Wings. So, you know, just do a lot of appearances. Now you can eat, you can eat KFC and you can, you can, uh, eat at Wild Wings. Um, buy all your groceries at Walmart, uh, you know, cause they're relatively cheap. Um, I think once I, I mean, once I went to France and made some real money, I, it wasn't necessarily an issue ever again. Um, okay. maybe then spending too much, but not having, um, not having enough was really those, those D league days. And mm-hmm. one thing I did really appreciate is it always be like an older guy who had played overseas a little bit and would, you know, take us out sometimes or, you know, a guy named Mo Baker first day I was on uh, Dakota, you know, went to the bar. I'm like, I don't have any money. Like I, it shouldn't really, you know, be here. <laughs> like I'm not, and he's like, Oh, don't worry. I got you. And like, you know, I didn't even think he really liked me that much, but it's like, it was like a, the idea that like, if you're on this team, yeah. we got to like support each other. Cause that's the only way to, to make it through, which again is why when you lose that support later in life, it can feel yeah. like much more difficult because there's no one swooping in to hand you anything anymore. Yeah. And I do, I do want to touch on that, that built in support structure that you talked about in the article, but you talked about France and I tried my best to, at least based off of your Wikipedia page, try to map out. I kind of like going in chronological order and try to map out how people's lives and careers go. But I mean, you were really all over the place, it seems. So you were with the Austin Toros, Dakota Wizards, which is in North Dakota. Then you went over to France. Uh, to play pro ball for a pro basketball club based out of there. Return to Dakota. I'm sure I'm going to get some of this wrong, but this is like the trajectory, right? Then you played for the Reno Bighorns, which was back in California. Had a couple moments during the summer league with the Utah Jazz and LA Clippers. Then played for three different teams in the Korean Basketball League. Then played in the Dominican. And... I'm sure I'm missing a lot. I mean, that's, that's a lot of stops, Rod. What did I miss there? There was Dominican the summer after Reno was the first time I went out there. And then there was Puerto Rico maybe sometime that in that kind of window too. Um, I was only in Puerto Rico for like two days. They're like, they're wild there. Took a red eye, (laughs) landed. I was like super tired, went straight to the arena for a game. Played poorly because I wasn't at all prepared against Robert Tractor Trailer, who's also like 400 pounds, and I was like 210. So without being max energy, it was like no chance. Then they're like, ah, it's not going to work out. And they, <laughs> they cut me a check for like one tenth of whatever the pay was supposed to be and sent me home like the next day. Oh my gosh. All I ever saw was a bar with a horse in it. <laughs> wow. But uh, I okay, mean, so it is a lot maybe of stuff. 12 things. Yeah. yeah. I don't, it's, it's a lot of stuff, but it didn't. It didn't it, when you're on like one year contracts, it doesn't feel like abnormal. Um, okay. I know how that sounds, but it's like, it, it, it's all is kind of par for the course. I think only in the NBA, do you really see guys who are with, you know, a team for a long time, maybe overseas. Yeah. Like if a guy, had, if Luka Doncic had never left, you know, Europe, he might be on Barcelona his whole career just because mm-hmm. he would have come up through their like junior system. But when Americans are overseas, there's no, you don't see anyone on a team for years and years. I mean, max like two or three years. And I think Marbury was on Beijing for like seven years, which is 
like amazing, right. but you, that's not, that's not the norm. So I guess to me, it doesn't feel like abnormal. It feels like kind of like I actually had some spots. I think you, you think about it more by country, actually, let's put it that way. You know, being in Korea for eight years is, is great, right? Because you, mm -hmm. you kind of find a country whose style of basketball works for you. Um, being in the D lasting in the D league for years, is kind of like, I kind of feel like I've been three places really like Europe, D league and Korea and more than like 10 teams among those three spaces. Huh. Interesting. So why do you think you kept playing for so long? Um, I, I guess maybe just the opportunities kept coming. And so it was, it was a way to keep doing the thing that you loved and, and make money and keep surviving and, and all that. Yeah, I mean, it, especially when I went to Korea, the, the money was good. Um, mm -hmm. you know, like really good. Uh, and I finally was able to like do things I'd always wanted to do. Um, even to this day, you know, I probably wouldn't be an artist. I wouldn't be in this room if I hadn't gone to Korea and, and earn the, you know, financial stability to make different choices afterwards. Um, mm -hmm. but I also think if I had retired, something else would have come up, but I think that's, that's when you're in the game, giving it up is like seen as like a crazy thing to do. Even when I retired, yeah. people were like, why? Like Koreans were like, why you're only 33. Like, yes, you're getting old and they'll let you know that every day, but you're not that old yet. Benson, you can keep doing this. And realistically I could have, yeah. but you, you kind of get this like pressure also that like you're doing the world's best job. So keep doing it. Even if it's right. not the best job to you. Yeah. That is such a powerful thing to say. I, I think that that message is passive aggressively, directly, indirectly said to athletes. And I think it's more so for male athletes. And also if in your, one of the larger money-making sports like football and basketball too, and maybe, you know, maybe a little hockey and baseball too, because there's so much money to be had and there's this, this, identity. Um, I, I think that the experiences between male and female athletes are still a little bit different. I think a lot of it has to do with the money still, you know, there's this prestige. And so I've definitely, I think, I think that there's pressure from within the system and also definitely pressure with, from outside of the system too, as you kind of talked about with your CarMax friend and it's like, Oh, now you're going to go work at CarMax or whatever it is, fill in the blank. And so I, I'm, I'm wondering, and there's also pressure from family members as well. Sometimes you get the father or the mother saying, Hey, you can still do it. You can still do it. Keep playing. And so the child lives, um, tries to carry out the parents' dreams. I've definitely seen that happen before. So what was that experience like for you finally saying, Hey, I think it's time to walk away. Yeah. I mean, it was, it was. I had the pleasure of retiring on a team that I'd been on for five years in Korea, which again is like for overseas, that's a lifetime. Um, mm -hmm. And so when I decided to retire, it, I mean, everyone really, you know, I kind of got the whole like retirement treatment, um, not like a, a farewell tool or anything, but you know, there was like ceremonies and stuff like that. It was, um, you know, there's basically two sides of it. There was a side of me, like actually like letting it go early and then letting it go like later. Um, hmm. meaning like the last game, it was in the championship in Korea game six, we were on the road and, uh, uh, you know, playing against, um, one of the soul teams, SK. 
packed arena in Korea. They have a lot of like weird things that they do before the game. Like, I don't know, like literally like flying drones with like lights on them. And people have these like sticks with like lights on them. They're doing like this and stuff. And I'm kind of just sitting there like, if we lose today, this will be the last game I play. And I started, uh-huh. I started crying a little bit. Cause I was like, I never actually taken a breath to like realize how cool all this looks like yeah. all these lights and sticks and Koreans just like going crazy. Um, and that was like the first stage of me being like, wow, this is like really like over. Um, yeah. Not that I didn't play hard or try to win, but we didn't end up losing on a buzzer beater. Um, but then it was probably like two years later when it was like, you know, when you reach this low point, you think like, you know what? It'll just be easier if I just go back and play. You know what? I'm still yeah. good enough. Like I haven't been gone that long. Like I'll just go do it for a little bit more and like work out some things while I'm there. And you know, so I did this three on three tournament because I guess I didn't know three on three was like a big deal. Um, but it is. And I played for a Korean team. And it was just like this month where we, and we, we basically got beaten pretty badly most of the time by these like well oiled machine, like Lithuanian teams and stuff like that. Um, but that was like really when it was like, I don't want to do this anymore. Like, what am I doing out here? I'm here not because I really want to be, but because it like, it seems easy. It seems like something that like, but times get hard to fall to what you know. Um, but it was immediately after that, that like my resolve, like really picked up and literally like art sales started spiking and I just like, it all took off. And it's like funny just cause like, I really like was forced to take ownership over my choice to not be an athlete anymore and not kind Mm -hmm. of live in this like in between where it's like, you can always go back. It's like, no, now I, I officially can never go back. I don't want to go back. I'm much happier now, but it's, it, it, that is a hard part for that, that second bit for people to come around to um, where you really, really let it go. Yeah. You can't, you can't live with um, one foot in and one foot out. It, it doesn't work for anything because that means you're not a hundred percent fully invested, whether it's basketball or art or whatever, doing anything halfway is never going to get you anywhere. And so, yeah, that's where things like you eventually have to make a decision. And I know you mentioned in your article that when you retired, that's when you started therapy and why, why was that? Yeah. Again, I just, I had heard, you know, that people had uh, tough times and I thought I'd just get out ahead of it a little bit. What's interesting is that I didn't really understand, you know, what that even meant. You know, I think, mm-hmm. Cause I'm, I, I think I'm a, like a, a reasonably intelligent person where I think I can like kind of hack certain things like, Oh, my experience doesn't have to be what other people's were. I'll just start therapy right away. I'll do it this way. I'll do it that way. But yeah. it, it did help. Um, but I think therapy didn't help more. It didn't become like fully a big part of like who I am until that day I let basketball go for real. When it was still kind of half and half, uh-huh. like I'd be with my therapist and I'd be like, Oh, you, you don't really get this about this thing or, you know, like, right. I don't know, like you, you don't understand how good I was. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm in this room with you, but you don't know where I've been. And now it's like, yep. man, we can just really have a conversation as people. Like I'm not looking down on anybody, which is, you know, I'm yeah. not to say that I'm some, some conceited person, but when you've done these things, you like, like, Oh, nobody gets it. You know, I'm still this yep. person. I'm big time. Cause you've had to tell yourself that for so long. Once I yeah. really let it go, man, like therapy became a whole different like exercise. Um, where it's like, I learned so many things about like (laughs) relationship with my mother or like, 
you know, other family members, like why I have certain tendencies, um, you know, man, talk about a, a, a scar that's healing is like alcoholism from playing in Korea. You know, I already was like a, a pretty big drinker before I went out there. Like Jesus Christ afterwards, that's all they do. I mean, literally they, they lead the world in alcohol consumption and it's like not close. And so mm-hmm. you just get used to like being, and being good at it means people like, like you more. So mm-hmm. it's just like alcohol, just drinking all the time. You know, all these things that I'm like back here now. And it's like, wow, none of that was, no, all of it was great. Honestly, I, I don't have any complaints mm-hmm. about it, but how does it serve me now? Like I have to, I have to find other ways of living and therapy is, you know, has helped me like kind of come to terms with some of those things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah, I think there becomes a point where you recognize, hey, the things that made me a really good athlete and worked in this in this stage of my life and in this system definitely doesn't transfer over as I'm I'm entering my 30s and entering the real world, so to speak, because that was my impetus for going to therapy as well. And having been in it for 10 plus years, I was like, clearly what I am doing has like kind of worked. But then as you mature, you're like, I'm just creating more pain for myself. And I'm also creating pain in my relationships and also to other people. I was like, whatever I'm doing right now is not working or it is, but it's like malfunctioning my system, you know? Mm -hmm. And so it sounds like that was, um, that was kind of your process as well. I, I have to give you a lot of credit for being so ahead of the game and deciding to just sign up for therapy when you're like, I don't, it, I don't know. It doesn't, it doesn't sound like you had any pressing issues. It was just more like, Hey, I'm going to get ahead of the game because this is, I, this is what I've seen with some of my friends. Yeah. Like I said, I mean, that was definitely it, but you know, some games you can't get out ahead of, you know, like I, I was ahead of yeah. it truly, but again, it wasn't until I actually let go of basketball that therapy like took. So I, I, like I said, I'd be there, but it's like, yeah, I don't have any issues. Like I'm fine. Like I'm, I'm this guy. Like, if anything, I think I, I, I'd like to think like at times I was like impressing my therapist. I got a new therapist, after, but I'd be, I'd be like, yeah, it's impressive, right? Things I just said. Yeah. I was getting buckets. You don't even know. You don't even know <laughs> the life I led. Like, it's like, that's not, that's not therapy. That's just me. Like kind of having like a, like a, an exit interview about my career for six months. Like, <laughs> it was meaningless. Oh yeah. No, it's, it is true. And I'm sorry. I don't mean to laugh at it, but I remember sitting at my, in my seat as well, because that is that, that mantra of like this delusion that you have to carry as an athlete, because if somebody's not going to say it to you, you certainly have to say it to yourself. It's like, no, I'm good. I'm great. I can be great. And this is who I am. But I remember my, it was one of the most powerful moments sitting in the client chair and my therapist was like, well, who is Prim without the accomplishments? And who's not an athlete, who's not a good student, who's not a broadcaster, who is she? I literally sat there at 31 years old and I was like, I had nothing, no answer, nothing. And I also started crying. And so clearly it was just this moment where I was like, I was, uh, I was revealed, you know what I mean? And it was a different side of me that I had not tapped into. And so I'm curious if you've ever had those moments with, as you were going through therapy where you're like, you're having to explore Rod, not the basketball player and Rod, the person who didn't have all these accomplishments. 
Yeah, it's, 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 it's funny because, you know, I feel like I've always been like pretty introspective. I think I had like kind of those moments while I was still playing. I know it doesn't hmm. like really make sense, but you know, one of my first yeah. year in Korea, first year in Korea, you know, this is 2010. And, um, although my phone at home was like an iPhone or something like an LG phone or something, when I got out there, you know, they give you a phone cause it wouldn't work internationally. Um, but they, the phone they gave you was like a flip phone. Okay. So it was just fine. Cause all I really needed to do was call, uh, translator or the team if something was happening. Uh, I think we just generally were on our phones a bit less in 2010 than now also. So again, it didn't feel weird to get a flip phone. Okay. But like third weekend, I'm looking for things to do cause I'm already bored and you know, I'm out there alone. You know, I do have a teammate, you know, he's much older than me, American teammate. So he doesn't come out that often. I find this music festival that like normally I wouldn't have gone to. And so I recognize the name fat boy slim. I wasn't even a fat boy slim fan. And it was like, I believe it's going to feel something like America going to this thing. It's at Hong Kong <laughs> Park. Where's Hong Kong Park? Oh, Hong Kong Park is right on the Han River. Boom. That's like five minutes away. So I get the address and I kind of show it to the, you know, the taxi driver in Korea. This ends up being like a three-hour drive with traffic. Um, because Hong Kong Park is like literally the entirety of the bank of the river. So it can be anywhere. <laughs> oh my <laughs> it gosh. It could be 50 miles away for all we know. Um, so I'm in this car for three hours and I, you know, I've got soju with me and I'm kind of drinking it. And the, uh, you know, this is, this is a taxi. It's not an Uber. Like they don't play music in taxis in Korea. So I'm like literally just like actually alone, no conversation, no noise, no phone. And maybe like an hour in, I just start crying. Like I never spent that much time alone with like just myself, like in silence. And it Mm. terrified me. I was like, Mm -hmm. I cannot believe I'm just in the back of this car, just like crying. Um, And it's one of the earliest stories I told my therapist, which, uh, you know, gave them a lot to work with. But for some reason, that feels like more of like a revelatory moment to me. Like Mm -hmm. my whole kind of last 20 years has been predicated on like, more, 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 like goals, noise, like people, yeah. things. And then when all of that was gone, it's kind of like the same, you know, that's what it was reminding me of when you were speaking. It's yeah. like, well, now it's just Rod in a taxi and there's nothing else. Like what happens now? <laughs> I was not prepared for, for that moment at all. Yeah. Yeah. For me, I think it, the, the next question, the next step was, is that enough? And then it goes, are you enough? Is prim enough without these things? And for me, the foundation fell apart because my, the foundation of my health was built on these accomplishments and these achievements of my tennis and being an athlete and being strong and being fast and doing all this other stuff. But as we know, that's not, that's not a strong foundation. That's not who you are. That's just what you do. Um, so with that in mind, what, what was the next step for you? Or what, what was one of the first issues that you started to untangle? Uh, yeah, I mean, as you're saying that, it, it's funny because, you know, a lot of the, the things that I guess made you you um, are, you know, common across a lot of athletes. What I think goes in a lot to me as I was attempting to answer that question is um, the element of, of race and of me growing mm. up in like an, an all white neighborhood, 
and never really getting uh, a validation for anything. Um, mm. And what, what happened to me is I, I knew that if I wanted to get, you know, recognition in, in this space, I, ha- I had to be better. And this is long before I played basketball. I had to be the first to get the test done. I had to, you know, win the reading award. I had to like show people over and over again, like, oh, you're, you're better than my expectations are. And truly it was never, it was never validated. I mean, down to a story I tell often is, you know, uh, my senior year, I was, you know, all American volleyball player, uh, uh, not technically, but like a top 10 volleyball player, um, had a scholarship to Berkeley for basketball. I had a teammate who played exclusively those two sports with me who really was just okay. And didn't have any, didn't never played past high school. And was uh, mm-hmm. like most likely to be an athlete in the yearbook, right? It's like these people just like whizzed past me with less accomplishment. So for me, it's always like I got to achieve more. I got to do bigger. When I go to college, I'm gonna mm-hmm. I'm gonna show people. I'm gonna come back here to this town one day and be like, look what you look what you missed out on. Mm-hmm. And that's truly something that's like it's still like kind of haunts me now. You know, I don't really care what any of those people think. It's like you know, Mitt Romney's nephew was my high school quarterback, right? It's like I just. He was a nice guy, super nice guy. I just want to go back and be like, who's, who's big time now? You know, and it's that tied in a lot with like even why I played. Like once I had nothing else to prove in basketball, it really became a job. And I was probably three mm-hmm. years into Korea. I'd won the championship, MVP, all these things. And it's like, okay, this is like as far as I'll go. Like, I think it's time to start thinking about retiring. Because the whole thing, mm-hmm. the whole house was built on how do I keep proving people that I'm better than they think I am? And so much of that was attached to your, your identity as a black male, but also living in surrounded in a very, sounds like somewhat homogenous uh, environment. While I mean, white as community. homogenous as it gets. Yeah. Like my, I went yeah. to Torrey Pines high school, like, you know, Torrey Pines golf course. It's, it's right. think, think about that as a high school. That's my, <laughs> that's where I was <laughs> thrown into, which again, has its benefits. I got a great education, mm-hmm. you know, but it, 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 it's still an identity crisis that I face today. It's interesting now that I've like starting to kind of hear, I've learned more about your journey and then starting to kind of piece things together. But it almost sounds like you've really tried to fit into certain places. And so, you know, here you're trying to prove yourself uh, growing up in Torrey Pines and then you go to college and then maybe you're not strong or tough enough, or you're not the, the tough guy, Rod Benson, that plays with an edge. And then you morph into that. And then as you're going through your career, and then it pays off, it sounds like it obviously did. You played for 12 years. Then as you're starting to zip back into normal life, then you're having to like shed that tough Rod Benson guy. But then you're also still coming to terms with the high school, the Rod Benson guy that was always trying to prove everybody that you're enough or you're, 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 you're great. Yeah. I mean, that's, and, that's am very I, does well that said. sound? That's very well said. Uh, I would say that I've always like been interested more in an approximation than in self growth. I can approximate this white kid who likes American pie. I'll just like it too. I'll do what he does. Uh, these guys are tougher than me in college. Yeah. I'll, I'll, I can be tough too. Like, and what, what's really fascinating. And this is like something within like only the last three or four months. Um, you know, cause I'm an artist and even how I started painting really, I mean, 
it was like a p- police brutality moment and all that. And then I, it, the, I just did art as a response to it. But the art I did was, again, approximating things that I liked already. And that art really carried me until this year. And earlier this year, I was like, I think it's time for a change, even in my art style. And really then did I start to do art that I think was, it was the first time I think I've done anything that's like, I'm not approximating anything anymore. Like, mm-hmm. yes, I have influence uh, from different artists. Sure. Like, but I'm not trying to make something someone else has done. I'm trying to do something completely different and represent myself differently through my art. So, you know, that's really like when it's like in these last few months where I've started to finally like shed this idea of like making stuff for other people and just do it exactly how I would do it, how I want to do it and know and nothing else. And it's, it's been liberating because when you are approximating so often you have imposter syndrome all the time. (laughs) This is the first time I, I really don't have it. I'm like, super excited about this next show and I can talk about it more. I can do press for it because I'm like, I truly believe in what I'm doing and not like that someone's going to be like, Hmm, seen that before. Where you got that from? Mm-hmm. It almost sounds like you're, you're going full speed ahead and your artwork is more real and more authentic than it's ever been in your entire life. Um, and a lot of that might be a little personal development, but I would also imagine it has to do with the climate and also the recognition of your and exploration of your racial identity, the BLM movement, all the sports intersection, people intersection of sports and politics and people coming out and being so expressive, which is, it's been tough. It's been, it's made me reflect on my identity as an Asian American, a second generation Thai American, a brown skin a woman, a minority, but I think everybody's like reflecting or a lot of us are, I shouldn't say everybody is because clearly not, you know, but it sounds like your new artwork is um, really authentic and an expression of that, all of those things. Absolutely. I mean, it's been two years since I've had a solo show and a large part Mm -hmm. of that is because the the pandemic, um, which have you heard, did you know there was a pandemic? There's a big thing where everyone (laughs) shut down for a while. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> is that what that was? I thought we were all just like hanging out inside and we were sick of going out, you know, going outside and just quarantining for the hell of it. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I mean, in that time, I mean, there was also in, in LA, it was a big um, city in terms of Black Lives Matter and in, t- in terms of uh, protests. Um, I was out, I mean, this t- this day last year, you know, I was out, like I was out every day for like four months um, until I really got exhausted. And then, um, you know, I ended up going to Joshua Tree and I made a video um, while I was out there. And I think that was like, that was probably like the first like real like piece of art I made where it's like, this isn't funny. You know, like I, I can, I'm really good at turning anything into comedy and kind of just moving on. But um, the video I made in Joshua Tree was like truly just like exploring like how much these four months have like meant what the protests had meant, what it was like being a part of them. Um, I even did talk about high school a little bit in the video, just as far as how it still affects me today. Mm -hmm. And I think like after that, like I didn't make like uh, painting art that was different yet, but I think that was like really like the first time where it's like, I can be serious about this because the world has finally given me an opportunity to be serious about it and not make me feel like I'm, 
speaking too much or like, you know, not fitting in enough. The time is right. The time is right. Sometimes you have to wait for the time to catch up and, and it seems like the time is, is really right. And you're personally at that juncture right now where you can um, feel comfortable in expressing that aspect. Well, Rod, as we wrap up this interview, I, you know, reflecting back on your, I always like to ask a lot of athletes because I think um, as one of my interviewees, Megan O'Leary, she is on the cusp of, uh, she made it to the Olympic rowing team and she's headed to her final Olympics. Um, and she always, she gave the analogy of athletic retirement as this big, huge train coming at you. And yet we're so delusional as athletes even acknowledge that it's coming towards us. And then when it does, we act as if we weren't prepared for it or we didn't know Mm. it's coming. But reflecting on your experience, what kind of advice would you have given yourself uh, as you were transitioning away from, from sport? That's a good question. Cause I feel like I would get myself the same advice. I would just also say like, you can't rush it. You know, it's gonna, the process is the process. And as much as you want to hack and circumvent certain things, like the mind only goes as fast as it goes. Um, I, I like the freight train analogy. I've always kind of, even when I was playing, I, I called it more like it's a death. You know, you, yeah. you, you are, you built an entire life and that life needs to die. And you need to make a whole new life which is why you can't laugh at somebody working at CarMax. It's their first job, so to speak. It's like, what do you get with no experience? You get a job that a 16 year old would get or a 20 year old would get, right? Um, But it's also because they're still also mourning a life that they had, their own life. It's weird to, you know, it's like all these movies about someone dying and they're a ghost, like looking over their, their life. It's like, you do that with your own career. It's still there, it's in front of you, but it's, it's not coming back. And it was always going to yeah. die, just like anything alive. It, it was always going to die. And you, you know, the better you prepare for it, the, the better the next part will be. And uh, I would hope more people think about it in that way, that it cannot survive. It, it comes for us all. And that, but yeah. that, that because you are starting over, you can build whatever life you want. Like truly, anything you want to do, you can do it now. Just do the work like you did before. Yeah, very well said. And I think you're right that we do as a society, we have to be more supportive of that as people are making as athletes in particular and making that transition and not to necessarily make fun of anybody, regardless of where they start, because we all have to start somewhere. But I always remember that quote that says, um, every athlete dies twice, the first occurs upon retirement. It is really true. And I think that that definitely resonates, um, at least with my personal experience. But Rod, thank you so much for opening up and sharing your story and really sharing some deep moments. Um, I, again, I loved your article and you you had some bits and pieces. It's, it's like, I've heard this story a gazillion times. I've certainly experienced it, but listening to it, there are some things that you said very differently. And I think that, that is, that's your left-handed side coming out the artist side in you that's very creative and has a different perspective. So uh, we really look forward to, to seeing you um, do more great things and let us know. So um, just to go, feel free to give a little promo about where we can see you, some of your artwork in your, your next show. Oh yeah. Thank you for that opportunity. Uh, the, it's, it's going to be a three city art tour, which I'm excited oh, for. Wow. Yeah. So we open in a, 
Juneteenth weekend. That's intentional in LA. Awesome. Uh, then we go to San Francisco the next weekend. Uh, okay. And then go to Las Vegas on July 2nd opening there. And then I'll be in Vegas for uh, two weeks. So July 4th weekend uh, awesome. is the opening there. So, I mean, all this information is on the uh, on my website, uh, rodbenson.com. Okay. You can see the flyer and the, the whole nine. Uh, and yeah, I mean, like I said, I, this is the most excited I've been for a show. It's probably why I got a bit ambitious to take it to three cities. But I feel like the art that I'm sharing now um, has each piece has such a story behind it that I'm just excited to like sit next to people and explain what, what those things mean. That is really awesome. My only request is that you might try to make a move over to the East coast eventually. Cause we're over here in New York. So if you could, <laughs> you know, try to make it over to the East coast and that would, that would be really cool. But, um, that's, that's really awesome. We wish you the best of luck and thank you for coming on. And thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. There's a lot of things to take away from this conversation, obviously, but what touched me on a personal level was what Rod said about athletes' relationships with their bodies. His comment that nobody criticizes their body more than an athlete and how we're constantly working on it really resonate with me. And honestly, it made me think about the body image issues and eating disorder issues. Sorry, let me do it again. Take three. There's a lot of things to take away from this conversation, obviously, but what touched me on a personal level was what Rod said about athletes' relationships with their bodies. His comment that nobody criticizes their body more than an athlete and how we're constantly working on it really resonated with me and made me think honestly about the body image and eating disorder issues I suffered not only during my athletic career, but especially after I retired. And it's true. Athletes spend their entire lives and careers not only being praised for their physically dominant and wonderfully sculpted bodies, but they also learn how to control it and manipulate it in ways that the rest of the general population just can't. Adjusting your grip by millimeter, altering your stance by half a step, implementing strategies to tweak your body so it goes faster or stronger or, or gets bigger or thinner or whatever. And when you know how to do all that, it kind of makes sense why some athletes take that experience the other direction or just go too far with it. And so we might begin to understand why there's an increased prevalence of body image issues and eating disorders among athletes when compared to the general population. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. Feel free to hit me up on all my social media platforms and tell me your thoughts. You can reach out to me at prim underscore seripipat. The next chapter with Prim Seripipat is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.